Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here today at the Mershon Center, and I appreciate the invitation and uh, particularly the hospitality of my colleague and uh, friend uh, Bob Kelly since, I, since I've been here. Uh, despite the fact that I grew up in Ann Arbor, um, as the son of a U of M professor, I'm very happy to be here at Ohio State as well. <laughs> Many people view the IMF as a faceless institution uh, that does something a bit mysterious that no one quite knows what it is. I can remember at the time of the uh, protests in 2000 when there was a, quite a large protest against the IMF and uh, the World Bank, the protesters were right in front of the camera, and the IMF was this large building looming in the background. Uh, and no one from the IMF ever came out and spoke to the reporters. And so it was the protesters very human against this building. And I, I found this sort of faceless problem to follow me through my career at the IMF when I've been out in the field, particularly when I've been working in Africa. I was a, on a mission team in Guinea. And we made an effort to do some outreach to uh, non-governmental organizations and to unions. And we had quite a good meeting with the unions one day and discussing the problems of civil service pay and their desire for more wages and the budget constraints. It was a very constructive uh, discussion. And afterwards, one of the union members came up to me and she said, oh, I'm so happy to meet someone from the IMF. You're almost human. And, <laughs> um, I sort of appreciated that compliment. But I hope today I can bring you some humanity of the IMF, some idea of what it is that we're doing, particularly on the global fight against poverty. The manager director of the IMF has made it clear that the, the fund is committed to the Millennium Development Goals that have been set forth by the United Nations. We're committed to joining in the global fight against poverty. We would contend that we've been engaged in this fight for quite a, quite a, bit, quite a long time. Others would disagree. But we're concentrating our efforts of late uh, on making sure it's clear what we do and what our role is in the fight against poverty. Just in case there are any, there's any doubt, let's see if I can get this to work. Well, something should. Hmm. Okay. Well, let me let me just talk on, and we'll see if the technical assistance can come. Um, the magnitude of the whoops, there it goes. It's just a bit slow. <laughs> the world is poor. The magnitude of the poverty problem in the world is significant. Um, <laughs> Oh, now we're back. There we go. Uh, over one billion people live on less than one dollar a day. And 47% of them live in sub-Saharan Africa. 750 million people are malnourished. A fifth of them are children. 29 million people in sub-Saharan Africa have HIV AIDS, and that is active HIV AIDS. That's not people who are seropositive. And 120 out of 1,000 children in low-income countries die before they're five years old. I think we're all familiar with these statistics, but I think it's, always, it's often useful to put them before our eyes once again. And for those of you who haven't been to poor countries, who haven't been to Africa, to go and confront them sometime and see, in fact, that we're very lucky uh, in, in the world we live in. I remember when I would go to Chad, uh, the per capita income in Chad is a dollar a day. And I would think back to the things I spent a dollar a day on in my daily life in the United States. And particularly at the time when I would go to Chad, I would be gone for three or four weeks. I would spend eight to ten dollars a day to have my dog taken care of while I was gone, while the Chadians were only making a dollar a day. So it's that kind of contrast that I think keeps us, um, that we should keep in the, in the front of our mind, really, as we talk about the problems that we're trying to, to, to treat here. Let me do, I'd like to do three things in this talk. Talk, first of all, about what the IMF is 
and particularly why it is involved in fighting poverty, because many people think it's not, shouldn't be any of the IMF business. Second, a bit about what the critics are saying about the IMF, about what we've been doing wrong. And then give you some ideas for you to think about, but also some ideas for the IMF to think about as uh, the world moves forward in this uh, fight to fight against poverty and to get to the Millennium Development Goals by 2015. So who is the IMF? The IMF is collateralized as a bank. Its members are the are 184 countries. Most every country in the world is a, mem is a member, with the exceptions of Cuba, North Korea, and some small island states. Um, members put in their own money as resources, so they become capital shareholders in the bank. Um, and we loan money much as a bank loans money. The governance structure of the bank reflects the international membership of the bank. There's a board of governors that consists of the 184 ministers of finance or central bank governors who are appointed by their country to serve as on the board of governors. The board of governors meets once a year at the IMF World Bank annual meetings, the ones that usually get the protesters out waving their signs in September or October. Uh, three times a week, there's an executive board that meets. The executive board uh, consists of 24 representatives of world countries. The large countries, such as the United States, have their own chair. The United States has 17% of the vote because it contributes 17% of the capital. Uh, the smaller chairs, the smaller countries uh, have shared chairs. The African countries uh, have two chairs, uh, each sort of the Anglo one representing the Anglophone countries, the other broadly representing the Francophone countries. Together they have about 3 to 4% of the vote. So you, it's not like the UN where there's a country per vote. It's weighted by the size of the economy. And this has led to some criticisms, which we can get into perhaps in the question and answer uh, period, about the governance structure of the IMF and whether the poor countries whom we are trying to serve, as well as the rest of our membership, um, are being served well by this governance structure where they have relatively little voice in terms of vote. I would note that for any large decision that the IMF takes in terms of its structure or its governance, it requires an 85% majority. The United States has 70% of the vote, so you can see that the United States has a veto over any large decision. Beneath the executive board, there are four members of management. The managing director of the IMF is appointed by the executive board. Uh, generally, it's a, it has been always a European. Uh, the current managing director was a former minister of finance of Spain. Uh, they've been economists. They've been um, central bank governors. This is the first politician that we've had as the head of the IMF. There are three other staff members or three other management members, deputy managing directors. And underneath that, there's a staff of about 2,500, mostly PhD economists that run the day-to-day -day operations of the IMF. So what is it that we do? Our charge is to promote global stability, global prosperity and stability, through first the balanced expansion of world trade. When the IMF was initially chartered back in 1944 after, the, after World War II, uh, the nations of the world saw it important that a system be set up so that trading could be facilitated, particularly through the control of currencies at the time. At the time, all currencies were pegged to the gold. There was a gold standard. All currencies were pegged to gold. Uh, and the IMF was charged with making sure that trading system and the monetary exchanges in that trading system uh, were facilitated. Thereby, the second charge is to encourage the stability of exchange rates, to avoid the uh, incidence of competitive currency devaluations, that is, that you don't have countries out competing with each other through the valuation of their currencies rather than through the, um, um, the value of their goods and services, and to avoid to provide what's called an orderly correction of balance of payments problems. 
Essentially, although we're not officially allowed to say it, the IMF serves as a central bank to central banks. In the United States, when a bank runs out of money, it can go and borrow from the Federal Reserve System. If the Federal Reserve were to run out of foreign exchange for some reason, who would it borrow from? It would borrow from the IMF. And we've gone into countries like Argentina, like Korea, when they have been low on their reserves, and we've lent them large amounts of money. Korea, in the crisis in the, in the late 1990s, was one day away from running out of international reserves. They wouldn't have been able to send one more dollar outside the borders of Korea unless it had been for the IMF loan that gave them a temporary bailout that allowed them to go ahead and correct their balance of payment situation. How do we go about doing what we do? First, we do a great deal of monitoring and policy advice. The IMF visits every country in the world every year and makes an evaluation of their economic policies. There is a mission from the IMF that goes to the United States government that writes a paper that's publicly available that critiques the United States government's economic policies. We go to Sweden, we go to Korea, we go to Guinea-Bissau. The largest and the smallest, they all get a visit a year from us with our evaluation of what's going on. In some countries, these evaluations are very important. Uh, when the IMF comes into a small country and says the government's mis, uh, misdirecting the economy, that's big news. The IMF's evaluation in the United States is not so big news. We lend money. We lend money to countries who are in difficulty. And I'll talk a little bit about the different kinds of countries, but the big name cases are Brazil, Argentina, Korea, where countries have really run out of money. They can't pay their international debts, and they need help from the IMF. And we give technical assistance. We provide quite a bit of service in terms of helping governments put together financial systems, both for their central banks and their budgets. We're experts on budgetary and monetary control, and we share that expertise with our members. As I said, we do, this, we do all of these three functions in the era of macroeconomic policy. How do you run your economy so you keep inflation low, you keep your currency steady, you keep your balance of payments from getting too much in the deficit? We do in financial sector policies. How do you put together a good banking system that's soundly regulated and well um, monitored? And we do it for any reforms that we think have a macroeconomic impact. And this is where we start becoming a bit controversial. Because oftentimes when we go particularly into countries that have come out of a system where they've been very state-controlled interventionist, we tend to go in and prescribe a fairly liberal market-driven economic system because we feel that those, that system is the best to uh, get a country to grow and to, get a, to, to ensure prosperity. The question comes up, what does this all have to do with poverty? It sounds a bit sort of abstract and, and above poverty. And there are many critics who say we really shouldn't be talking about poverty at all. But we would beg to differ. First of all, poor countries, low-income countries as we call them, are members of the IMF, and they have the right to our advice, to our monitoring, and to our financial support. For these countries, growth and poverty reduction are at the very center of their policy agenda. In the United States, the center of the policy agenda uh, is perhaps on the overall deficit or perhaps on the, the conduct of monetary policy. But if you go to a small African country, it's all about how can we get growth to go faster and how do we reduce the number of poor? How do we provide more money for our people? When you're in Chad, they're concerned about the fact that people make a dollar a day whereas their neighbors or the, the people they see across the world make a, a great deal more. So we can't, in good conscience, divorce ourselves from the issue of poverty reduction and growth 
if um, we want to serve our members. And furthermore, we are very much of the view, and I think this is a view that's widely held now, it was not 20 years ago when we first started espousing it, that in order to have sustained growth, in order to have poverty reduction, a prerequisite is that you have to have some measure of macroeconomic stability. What do I mean by macroeconomic stability? I mean an inflation rate that's relatively low so that people who hold assets in local currency don't have the value of their assets deteriorate over time. This is particularly true for the poor who have no way of holding assets usually other than in local currency. They don't have banks in their villages that they can uh, take out CDs that uh, increase with the, the rate of interest. You need to have a stable price level for the country to have predictability so people can invest, can make economic decisions for the future that will have value when the future comes. And you have to have a currency that's stable. If you have a currency that is constantly depreciating, that is running away, that the value is, is falling, you can't make plans in the future. You can't invest. People won't want to come into that country and build something because its value will slowly deteriorate. So we're very much of the view that macroeconomic stability is essential. And the fund is really about macroeconomic stability in these countries. That's our first mission. And we believe very much that in the 1980s and 90s, we accomplished that mission. You have lots of countries in Africa that had runaway currencies and runaway inflation rates that are now pretty much stable. The trouble is they don't have growth. We've got the stability, but we're not getting the growth yet. The macroeconomic stability is necessary, but it's not sufficient. And the question the world has begun to ask is, you've invested your time, you've invested your money, you've invested your expertise in these poor countries. Why aren't you getting growth? Now, that's in some sense the argument in favor of the IMF being involved in these countries. Others say, but wait a second. The fund doesn't have any expertise in development issues per se. As I was just saying to some of your colleagues, I'm not a development economist. I was trained in labor economics and macroeconomics. I don't know much about development. Neither do many of my colleagues. So when we go into these countries and we talk about development, we don't talk with a voice of authority. In order to get this sustained growth, it depends on more than just macroeconomics. It depends on a wide variety of different policies. You have to get institutions right. You have to get corruption down. You have to build bridges. You have to build roads. You have to have people educated. You have to have good health structures. The IMF has nothing to do with all that. We don't know anything about it. And it's a medium to long-term challenge. Typically, the focus of our institution has been on solving crises, not on looking to the medium and long-term. And furthermore, people say, well, wait a second. These countries don't pose a long-term threat to global financial stability. If Argentina goes under, that has domino effects to Brazil, to Uruguay, and eventually to U.S. and European banks. And there are serious problems for all of us if Argentina would, would, would founder. If Cape Verde goes under, most of us, frankly, wouldn't notice, unless you were Cape Verdean, of course. So there are critics who say, look, these jobs of development are somebody else's jobs. We reject that criticism. We think we have something to say about development. We don't have all the expertise in all the areas. We perhaps don't say it the right way sometimes, but we feel that we have a role to play because, in fact, the citizens of Cape Verde have as much right to our advice and to our good counsel as the citizens of the United States or of Argentina. And frankly, if Cape Verde goes under, it makes a great deal of difference to one of our members. So the debate is this. Limit the fund to its traditional role. 
make it look at macroeconomic stability, give financial assistance in cases of crisis, and give technical assistance in this area of expertise, or modify its role to recognize that growth needs to be, is an interdependent process. It requires not just macroeconomics, but other, other policies, and it's inherently interdisciplinary. And the crux of the debate in the world right now is over how you're going to position the IMF in this, if you will, between these two extremes. And I think I want, there's no, there's no pat answer to this by any means. Um, it's a debate that goes on in our board. It's a debate that goes on among our members. It's a debate go, that goes on with uh, non-governmental organizations. Uh, it's not resolved, but it's at the heart of how the IMF is going to help the world move toward meeting the Millennium Development Goals, toward reducing poverty. And I'd like to give you some texture of the debate, rather than just talk about it in the abstract, by talking about three or four criticisms of the IMF and telling you some stories that might illustrate why those criticisms are right or wrong. So let me move to that. Criticism number one that I've touched on a bit already, macroeconomics has nothing to do with the poor. Macroeconomics is an abstract concept that the poor don't understand, that if you're going to reduce poverty, you have to do other things. And I think this is best illustrated by uh, a meeting that I had once with the, the president of, of Guinea. Um, I, I'm not supposed to say the name of the country, so uh, a president. Um, we were there looking at the loan that he had with us. He had certain conditions that he had to meet. And what we had found is that, in fact, his government was way overspending their budget. The central bank was printing money in order to fund that overfunding of the budget. And they were at risk of losing their hard-won battle against inflation. Inflation was relatively low, 5 or 6%. But at the rate they were printing money, it was about to spike up again. Uh, so really, they had not followed our advice, nor had they acted in their own best interest. Um, and I explained this to him in some detail. Now, the farmer was a, or the president was a farmer uh, by origin, uh, a peasant basically who worked his way up through the Guinean Revolution, and he listened very politely to me and nodded, and he said, um, "So, um, if I understand you well, it's not going very well." And I said, no, it's not going very well. Sandavapa in French. And he said, okay, we'll take care of all that macro stuff. That's fine. Do you have any tractors? I said, what do you mean, do you have any tractors? I'm, I'm the IMF. I'm a bank. I don't, I don't have tractors. He said, no, 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 no. You, you, you money people. You give me money. What happens when you give me money? These guys over here, and he pointed to his minister of finance and his governor of the central bank. He said, they just steal it. Don't give me money. Give me something I can use. If you give me a tractor, I can give it to a farmer, and the farmer can do something. Money doesn't buy me tractors. I was a bit astounded at, he was, he was a very forthright man, I mean, <laughs> accusing his minister and his governor of stealing money, but he said it just disappears. And this, in some sense, to me, represents the argument that's going on about whether macroeconomics was, was important. I was talking up here at the sort of grand macroeconomic planning levels, and he was down here on the farm thinking about how is he going to get that tractor out there. The two are connected. In fact, if his government managed its budget properly, his government could buy tractors, which could then be given to farmers who could farm, right? That, it, that's a fairly simple um, link. But even more complicated is the way he was running, or the way his ministers were running the economy, no investors were going to come in because the inflation was going to be run away, the currency was going to depreciate, 
no investors were going to come in, invest in farming equipment, or invest in a small store that would provide tractors. So you could have the government buy tractors, but that's a drain on the government budget. And then the farmers would receive the tractor as a gift. They'd have no investment in the tractor to make sure it was maintained because they'd just get another tractor later on. So there was a very complicated link between these macroeconomics that I was talking about and this guy who wanted tractors for his field. And part of the problem is that the fund has been working at this macro level, and the World Bank, more or less, has been working at the micro level, and there's not been a lot of connection. And part of the effort that we're, we're trying to do right now is to make that connection. And the way we're doing it is we're asking countries to design something called poverty reduction strategies, where they sit down and they lay out a strategy for reducing poverty in these countries, sort of sector by sector. Here's what we're going to do in education. Here's what we're going to do in health. Here's what we're going to do in infrastructure. Try to cost it out, see how much money it's going to cost, and see if we can make that work. Now, this is a very complicated process. I mean, imagine if you ask the United States, which is a sophisticated country, to put together a five-year plan as to how it was going to reduce poverty just in Washington, D.C. It would take forever, right? And you'd, you'd get a, a rather complicated mess, right? To do this in a, in a poor country with little human capital, little infrastructure, little uh, no sense of planning, uh, is not an easy thing to do, but it has focused these countries in the, the effort of producing one of these papers, and I think there have been 52 of them produced, has focused these countries on thinking about how the overall budget and the overall macroeconomic situation fit with the getting the tractors out in the field. And so it's this link between micro and macro that is missing uh, that needs to be put together. Related, one that we hear lots nowadays, the IMF is preventing external money, money that comes from abroad, for being spent to fight HIV, AIDS, and malaria. That we're blocking this money from being spent. Either by restricting the hiring of teachers, or, uh, sorry, by nurses or doctors, or uh, by just saying you can't spend it. It's a myth. We don't block the money from being spent. But there are serious problems with the receipt of international aid right now in these countries. And the HIV AIDS uh, problem illustrates the type of problem that you can see in many sectors. The United States, other Western countries, have made a real effort to get money out to these countries because they know the HIV AIDS problem is terrible. If you don't treat it early, it gets worse. So early treatment is good. And here's the money to do it. So the money arrives at the central bank in the government's account. The government doesn't know what to do with it. Well, they may know what to do with it. They could spend it on antiretrovirals. So that's easy. That's dollars that come in that are spent to buy antiretrovirals to bring it in. So now you have the antiretroviral drugs. How do you get it out to the people? Antiretrovirals are not like aspirin. You can't just say, you know, here, take two of these a day and go away and your headache will be gone. They require a regimen that has to be followed by a trained health professional on a daily, if not a, or a weekly, if not a daily basis, and has to be adjusted depending on what the reactions are, and the reactions are very person-specific. So in a country like Botswana, where 35 to 40% of the people are HIV positive, uh, that's an enormous task. And you don't have trained nurses and trained doctors to do that task. And if you do have trained nurses and trained doctors, they're already working in the clinics doing basic care, uh, delivering babies, treating colds, treating broken arms. So do you pull them away 
from doing that and have them treat HIV AIDS? Or do you train more people? Well, that takes five to ten years to train a nurse in the appropriate way. Can you train them just in HIV? Yes. But this all takes time, and it all takes infrastructure, and the infrastructure is not there. So the money comes in, and it can't be absorbed. Or it can be absorbed. They say, well, I've got this money. We'll build health centers. So they build health centers that aren't staffed. And in building health centers, what do they do? They, they run up the price of construction. All this money comes in for AIDS health centers, so they build a lot of buildings. Well, meanwhile, schools aren't being built, or it becomes more expensive to build a school. So you start having macroeconomic effects. The amounts of money involved here are huge. In Rwanda, 50% of the government budget is paid by donors, 14% of GDP. That's a huge amount of money coming into a very small economy, and that has disruptive effects. So what the IMF does, along with the World Bank, is try to solve this problem. But we say, look, just don't go spend your money willy-nilly. You have to spend with a plan, with some idea of how it's going to be spent. It's easy for donors to give money. It's much harder to spend it, and spend it in a way that won't be disruptive to the economy. In the worst case, what you can have is you have workers that are productively producing an export. Say in Rwanda they're producing tea. And they see that they can get a good job over in the health sector. And they all leave the tea farms and go work in the donor-driven health sector. Well, all of a sudden the country has no exports. And so aid is a good thing, but it can be misused, not out of it can, surely it can be misused through corruption, but out of ignorance of what the macroeconomic impacts are. So oftentimes when we're accused of preventing money from being spent, what we're saying is spend money wisely so it's not wasted. But these are very, very complicated problems. HIV is just one. You expand that to education. You expand that to uh, other health problems. You expand it to infrastructure, uh, and it becomes terribly complicated. Lots of people think the free market does more harm than good, that they decry our insistence, you will, that markets work. And here, there was an interesting experience I had in Zambia a long time ago, where corn was produced entirely by the government in the following sense. You had farmers out in the field who, at the beginning of the corn season, would go to the government grocery store or the government store. They would get their fertilizer and their seed, They'd plant their corn. They'd grow their corn. On the appointed harvest day, some, a government truck would come and pick up the corn. The government truck would take it to a government mill. The government mill would mill the corn. The milled corn would be taken to a government store. The government store would then sell the corn to the people who ate it. At every point, the government ran the operation. At every point, the government ran a deficit. The government lost money. It costs more to produce, more, more to import the fertilizer and, the, and, and generate the seed than the peasants paid for it. It costs more to transport it uh, than the millers paid for it, and it costs more to mill it than the final consumers paid for it. So there was a chronic shortage in the government's budget to pay for corn. So we said, okay, we're going to disrupt this system. We're going to get rid of these government interventions. We're going to privatize it. This is very controversial. So we went to a private system one year, and we did it in a rather brutal way. We said no more government intervention, no more government subsidies. It had, you could have a government store, but it had to be run at a profit. It had to be run at a, 
at a profitable level. So the first year it happened. The peasants showed up at the store to buy their fertilizer. They couldn't pay for it because they weren't, hadn't been paid enough the year before. So they didn't produce quite as much. They went to sell their corn. No truck arrived. So they carted it to the nearest village. Well, there was no government mill in the nearest village. So it didn't get milled, and in the end, there wasn't much corn at the other end, and people started to starve, or were hungry at least. Overlaid on that was a drought that year. Okay, so it was a horrible confluence of circumstances. We bought a lot of, brought a lot of corn in from the United States and from other places to fill the, fill the gap, or the government did. So the government paid its subsidy that way. But the next year, the peasants had thought about perhaps producing other crops, not just corn. Uh, there were people who had invested in a truck because they knew trucks were supposed to come at a certain time, and they came instead and picked up the corn from the peasants at a good rate. People brought portable mills into the villages, so each village now had its mill and didn't have to have, go to a government mill. And over the course of two to three years, the entire system became a privately owned system that provided for itself. The truckers provided the right trucking services at the right time. The millers provided the right mill. The corn was cheaper in the stores. The country diversified its production of, uh, of vegetables. The market worked. The transition was horribly difficult, much more horribly difficult than we had envisaged. But ultimately, when you get the market system up and working, it runs. And so there was a lesson in some sense on both sides that, yeah, transitions are very costly, but if you can overcome those costs, you get a good result at the end. And oftentimes what the critics do is focus on that year of transition. And I think what the IMF, as I'll say at the end, the IMF has to think about those transitions a bit better. The final criticism is that we apply the same policies everywhere, that no matter what country we're in, we just say the same thing we said in the country next door and the country across the world. Um, and here there's an interesting example that comes from uh, one, of the, uh, head, one of the former heads of the IMF or deputy heads who was an African. And we were proposing civil service reform in a country. Most African countries have an automatic advancement through their civil service. So if you've been X years in your post, you get to go to the next post, no matter what your qualifications, and you just move up the ladder. That clearly isn't a great way to run a civil service. There should be some notion of merit as you go forward. So we had proposed that you go to a merit-based advancement system. And Mr. Watara, Alassane Watara, a co uh, gentleman from Cote d'Ivoire, said, no, 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 you can't do that. He said, because culturally in these countries, merit is what family or what tribe you're in. If you have a merit-based system, since you don't have any norms or probably won't have a lot of auditing on the system, what you're going to get is when the merit evaluations come through, the supervisor who will be in Tribe X will give all the, his subordinates in Tribe X a good evaluation and all the ones in Tribe Y a bad evaluation. So what you'll get is a reinforcement of the political power in Tribe X in the guise of merit. He said it's much better to have an automatic advancement system because it gives those people in Tribe Y who aren't in power a chance to advance despite the fact being in Tribe Y. And it comes from the notion that when you're in government in an African country, what you're supposed to do is take care of your tribe. 
that's the moral imperative. It's the, the notion of nep- nepotism is not a bad word. It's a good word. You hire your family and you hire your tribe. And you give the benefits of government to your tribe. So culturally, it was a very different way of having to look at something. And we struggled a lot with this as to how, how you go about designing a system that would, in some sense, produce the, produce the, 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 the the thing we want in the Western culture. And he said, don't, you have to think about it differently. You can't think it in Western, Western cultural norms. And I think this is an often lev- levied criticism. At the same time, the IMF has a wealth of experience across many countries where many things have been tried over and over again and failed. Um, persistently, countries want to have export processing zones where there's an enclave where goods can come in that aren't taxed and go out as exports. Seems like a great idea because it encourages exports without the exporters having to pay the value-added taxes and all the import taxes that are needed. The trouble with things are these are inherently leaky. So what happens is as they come into export processing zones, they come in in the guise of being inputs to be used for export. In fact, they leak out into the rest of the economy. And you degrade your tax base because you're not taxing the imports appropriately. There are much better ways of going about it. So there are things like that that are culturally, if you will, insensitive. And modulating between those two things is an important challenge if we're to get growth uh, to come uh, out of macroeconomic stability. Let me give you sort of three summary ideas to think about, and then I'll give me three summary ideas to think about as well. First of all, that we really believe, and I think it's true, that macroeconomics does matter in fighting poverty. Fighting poverty involves getting people in an economy to invest and think about the future. And without a stable macroeconomic environment, you can't do that. People are too day-to-day oriented, even at the village level. What, you, what we found is that you start getting rudimentary credit systems built up at village levels when, in fact, they know how much money is going to be worth in a year's time or in two years' time. Then money starts to matter, and you can use money to make intertemporal changes. You can borrow today to invest for tomorrow. If you don't have that basic element of macroeconomic stability, you don't have that element of predictability, and you can't get growth or poverty. Second idea, it can be a real challenge to make aid help. Everybody thinks aid is a good idea. If you listen to Dr. Jeffrey Sachs at the UN, he's calling for an increase of over $50 billion a year to aid in third world countries. I applaud him for his efforts. But if that money becomes available, it's going to be a huge challenge for the IMF, the World Bank, but mostly for those poor countries to do something with that aid that will actually produce the results we want on the other end. Think back to the AIDS example. Think back to, uh, think back about any kind of systemic increase in education and infrastructure. If you don't pay attention to how you use aid, you're going to get lots of bridges built to nowhere. It's not just in Alaska that bridges are built to nowhere these days. Um, And systems meant to help the poor can exploit the poor. the export, the, the exercise of any power in a system can, in fact, hurt the poor, okay? can hurt anyone. When you build up a system, say, to prevent HIV, uh, to any governmental system that's designed to aim at the poor, 
if there are not checks and balances in the system, if there's not monitoring of that system by not just the international community, but most importantly by the local community, those systems will be diverted toward the corrupt government if there is a corrupt government. And this is, it's very important that the non-governmental organizations in these countries be encouraged to monitor. It's very important that the press be encouraged to monitor. In this country, the way systems are kept from exploiting the poor is we have lots of vocal monitors on the outside looking at governmental systems that are doing things and criticizing them. And we find lots of things wrong, even in this country. Poor countries don't have that same kind of system. And you need to have that system in place in order to make money work. Three ideas for the IMF to think about. As I said, I think these macro-micro linkages are absolutely critical toward understanding how we're going to get from a situation where we just have macro stability to one where we have macro stability and growth. Uh, we have to understand how the macroeconomics of budgets and aid helps the microeconomics of getting people to do things in a better way. We understand a bit of both, but we don't understand always how they fit together. Um, second, as I said earlier about the corn example, transitions can be very costly. And whenever something's costly in a society, it's usually costly to the poor. The rich can shelter themselves from transitions because they have access to other resources. Transitions like the corn transition I talked about was costly, and it was costly to the wrong people, and there was a mistake. And country-specific circumstances can make international experience less meaningful. It's not to say that international experience is not meaningful, but you always have to step back from your cultural perspective or from the cultural perspective of the country in which the previous experience took place and think about how culturally it fits in to, um, to the situation of the individual country. I think in many ways this, this lecture perhaps fits in nicely with the, with the spirit of the Mershon Center in that I, it very much calls for an interdisciplinary and international approach to growth and development. Economists can't do it alone, despite the fact we'd like to think we can sometimes. But it requires the political scientists, the sociologists, the anthropologists, the engineers to all talk to each other. We need to understand each other's constraints. We don't need to understand everything about each other's jobs. But it's only in that spirit of cooperation that I think we can move forward toward, uh, toward the goals that the world has set for itself. I'd be happy to take any questions. Thank you. Yes, sir. Thanks. Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. And the IMF has lobbied for it. Uh, the managing, both this managing director and the two previous ones have been very vocal advocates of getting rid of the agricultural subsidies. Now, the one, the one interesting thing that the IMF, the tool that the IMF has, is that we do comment on every government's economic policies every year. Okay, this is what's called our Article 4 consultations I mentioned at the beginning. And we have commented in our consultations with the United States very strongly against the, the subsidies for sh sugar, cotton, that benefit relatively few farmers in the United States and have a fairly serious impact on, um, on farmers in, 
in Africa. In fact, it's estimated that if we just got rid of the agricultural subsidies, we'd increase effective aid to Africa by $70 billion a year, 50 to $70 billion a year. So the impact of the, of the agricultural subsidies are as big as the amount of money that Jeff Sachs and others are calling for it to be transferred. And you, know, you can talk about it abstractly. I saw it in a very concrete fashion when I was in Chad, which is a, a landlocked country in the middle of Africa. And it's, it's tropical. And there was one part of the country that was very appropriate for growing sugarcane. It cost less to support to import refined sugar from Europe than, pro, than to produce it in Chad. So you, it costs less for a French farmer, I guess, or whoever, a Sp Spanish farmer, to grow the sugarcane in Spain, process it, put it on a boat from Spain all around Africa to Cameroon, ship it on bad trucks with, you know, um, bad tires over bad roads, a thousand kilometers to, to Chad and then distribute it than it did to produce it there. So there's clearly there's, there's something wrong, and it's because the sugar was subsidized. So it, it has a serious impact, uh, and it, uh, it goes many ways. The other thing, you, it goes in both directions. Uh, you see in Africa, if you go any African country, you see people, say, with OSU T-shirts. Okay, these are T-shirts that you have given to Goodwill, and Goodwill sells on bulk to the Africans. It's put the African uh, clothing manufacturers out of business because they don't have a way of getting their cheap, their relatively cheap, more cheaply made, not cheap in quality, uh, goods into the United States. So it, it's a big problem. And we had hull, held out great hope for this round of the, uh, the, the WTO talks, but it doesn't look good at this point. Um, so the IMF has pushed very hard, and we've been vocal both in our international pronouncements and our, in our bilateral pronouncements. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, th that type of work at the micro level, either in the financial sector or outside, tends to be, fall in the World Bank's domain. We try to, we're sister institutions, and we try to make sure we each do play to our comparative advantage. I think what's needed is more coordination between the institutions, more discussion. The microfinancial level is one that sort of falls in both our domains. Um, microcredit has been a spur to growth in many, many villages and small economies. Um, and again, the bank knows better than us how to establish those small institutions. Where we have come into the picture is how you regulate those institutions. Because what can be a very small um, institution for a village and run on a, if you will, a personal basis, once it gets formalized and it spreads a bit beyond the village to several villages, you start getting into regulatory banking problems. I mean, people cheat. <laughs> To, or people overland, or they don't lend prudently, and they start misusing uh, they start misusing the resources that are allocated to them. And so the IMF is starting to develop some expertise in how you regulate without being, you know, putting a heavy regulatory burden on them. How you ensure a minimum amount of accounting and regulation so those those can actually prosper. You've seen a lot of um, microcredit um, institutions blossom, and then fold in on themselves because ultimately they haven't understood how to, how to grow properly. So that's where we have done some work. Uh, 
But I agree, this, the, you raise the issue again of micro-macro coordination. How, how do you do the macroeconomic privatization of the corn industry, but you make sure all the elements are in place? It's often hard to do. Yeah? Um, I have two questions. One is just a technical question. When the IMF makes a decision to loan, who actually makes that decision? Is it the executive board? Do they do it through a vote? And then the second one is more of a curiosity question. I've heard the claim made that at times the IMF will go into a country, they'll sit down to give advice, and the government of the country will say, we already know what we need to do, but we want you to tell us what to do so we can use you as a buffer for the political consequences of enacting these reforms. Is that true? And if so, can you give an example? Okay. Um, the, the process of, of get, getting a loan out, uh, there's a team that goes from Washington out to the country, Oftentimes in these countries we have a representative who's there, who lives there. The team goes out and negotiates the loan with the, with, the, with the government. They bring back what's called a letter of intent, which spells out what the government's request is and their promises are. Um, that letter of intent is then put through an internal vetting process. It's my department that makes sure it conforms to our general policy. It then goes to the management of the IMF if there are any disagreements in, within departments. Sometimes we think they're being too, too easy on the country or something like that. Management makes a decision, but the final decision is taken by the executive board with a vote. Okay, so the, the board ultimately has a decision. Um, the vote only requires 50%. If it actually gets to a board meeting, then it passes. If, it, if, it, if the loan has problems for one reason or another, it never actually gets to the point of a board meeting. It, it stops before, but there is that process to, to vet it. And occasionally there are controversial votes that do take place. Um, when Mexico got its big loan, um, I think France voted against it, as I recall, yeah, or they at least abstained. Um, yeah, the, uh, there are often cases where the government um, uses the IMF uh, as, um, as the bad guy, if you will, the fall guys. Um, I'm trying to think of an example that I've experienced. It, it's usually, it's oftentimes to enforce policies within the government as much as it is between the government and the outside. Um, you'll find that a minister of finance is the guy who knows sort of what's going on everywhere and who knows the overall budget constraint. And he's got an education minister who can give him a list of desperate needs in the education sector and a health minister who can do the same thing. And he doesn't have enough money for them both, and he's got to sort of decide. And he very much uses, if you will, his agreed budget constraint with the IMF to explain to them why they can't spend their money. Um, we, when I was in Ghana, they had to increase the gas tax. And everybody knew they had to increase the gas tax, or the, the price of gas. The price of gas was administered. And they blamed the IMF. I mean, they said, we're going to blame you. And I said, fine. I mean, you know you have to do it. That's fine. Oftentimes, we have been known to, if you will, impose things on people, too. It's, it, but but part, of the, part of the myth of imposition is, in fact, it's, we're, we're used in this manner to take the political heat. It happens. Um, yeah? Uh, yeah. Quite a few of your examples suggest that it's basically the local government is the problem and not the solution. You also seem to be suggesting that the donors are mostly the supporters of the government. So would the situation be better off if the IMF and other donors were supporting these donors, which are mainly the problem? That's a tricky area. There are countries where we have withdrawn support. I mean, for a long time, we did not go into Kenya 
we did not support Kenya because there were serious problems of corruption uh, that were at the heart of the government. We did not lend our support, and nor did anyone else. And the IMF often has the attribute that we, when we say no, everybody else follows along with us. We're, in some sense, the, the key that opens the door. Uh, we are not supporting Zimbabwe right now, for example. Where you get into more nuanced or more difficult situations is when you go to a country where there are elements of the government who are trying to do the right thing. When I worked in Guinea, I very much felt that the governor and the central bank minister, the governor of the central bank and the minister of finance, who the president accused of stealing, but were on the right track relative to the rest of the government. And they use, and they in some sense use the IMF to help them along, right? And so the, the question for me was, do I help these guys? I mean, if I support them, I help these guys and consolidate their power within the government and consolidate their ability to do the right thing, or do I walk away? And when you walk away, you, I mean, when the fund walks away, it walks away with a lot of money, and ultimately that hurts the poor, right? So there's some very difficult decisions to be made. Oftentimes, our prodding of the government to do, if you will, the right thing, to get rid of the corruption, takes place behind closed doors. I and mean, governments, um, the world doesn't see that, that element of what we're doing. But we've made bad calls in the past. We've, we've supported uh, dictators, and uh, it's a tough call. I think it was particularly bad during the Cold War. And this is when some of our big controversial loans to Zaire went out, uh, to Zambia, when there was, a, if you will, a competition between the Soviet Union and, and the U.S., and the, the IMF was used as a tool of the U.S. to, to get some money to these countries a different way. But it's, it's often a very tough call is to, uh, to, to, to stop altogether. Yeah. So I heard Roger Bono wants to you know, mm -hmm. Um, debt relief, we, we could spend two hours talking about debt relief. Uh, we're right in the middle of this new debt relief initiative, so I, I've spent my last six months on it. What, what I think everybody agrees is the developing world needs more resources. That, in fact, the amount of money devoted to the developing world by the developed world is very small. It's less, it's about 0.2% of GDP, roughly, I think. Um, the goal is to get it to 0.7. Debt relief is one way of transferring those resources. It's a way right now that has a certain political legitimacy thanks to the non-governmental organizations. When you say to a populace, the United States population or the British population, we're going to give debt relief to poor countries, people are generally supportive of that because of the lobbying that's taken place. If you say I'm going to give $50 million to these countries, they go, oh, no, 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 it's a waste, right? It's the same $50 million. It's, one's given in the form of debt relief, one's given in the form of budgetary um, allocation. With debt relief, you don't have to do a budgetary allocation in most countries, okay? So it's a way of getting more resources. Is it a panacea? It's not the answer. In okay. fact, debt relief is going to give these countries, the, the new debt relief, initiative will give African countries about a billion a year in terms of, you know, um, release debt service. So it's not a huge thing for all of Africa. Um, all resources are good, so it's, it's, it's not a bad idea, but it's not the answer. Uh, and I think this current debt initiative is very much a political animal that has uh, certain problems associated with it. But I, it will go through, and it gets you some resources out, but it's, I, I'm afraid that it's going to, it shouldn't be the end. So if there were more debt relief, would it be more of a panacea? 
No. We're getting to the point where there's, where there's not going to be much more debt relief because we, re, we relieved it all, okay? I mean, there, there'll be some countries that are close to zero official debt, okay? Uh, and the real question going forward is what the countries do next because if they go out and just borrow again, well, be good if they go out and borrow again. They have more resources. But if they borrow poorly, it won't be good, and you're going to get yourself into the same, same loop, right? So um, I don't think money – as I probably have indicated, I don't think money is the panacea. I think it's a whole confluence of, of expertises that have to come together. Debt relief is a way of getting some money out pretty quickly. Um, it, it's also back, the other, the other problem with it is backloaded money because some of the debts of these countries extend over 40 years. So they weren't going to pay, their, they weren't going to make their last payment until 40 years from now. So some of this money isn't going to come for 40 years. Well, if you want to solve problems, you've got to front load the money more than that. So not perfect. But there's no reason to object to it either. Yeah. Um, you clearly stated that IMF is in favor of free market policies. Um, one of the common criticisms, criticisms of IMF is it only has one model mm-hmm. in mind when it approaches countries, namely the U.S. model. What is IMF's approach or view towards alternative models of capital, like the Swedish model or the German model, or and how much? We are trying to give them more and more breathing space. I think um, there has been – I don't think we, we have followed the U.S. model by any means. In fact, if you look at uh, the types of education – well, again, we don't, we don't prescribe education systems per se. It's the bank that does that. But I'll talk for, if you will, both institutions. We have not followed the U.S. model or, or uh, in health or education, for example. Um, our view is that you've got to let markets work. There are, in fact, instances where markets don't work well or are obstructed for some reason or another. In that case, government intervention is appropriate. We, are, we admit sort of a wide variety of, um, of behaviors. For example, if you look at the size of government in a typical African country, the size of the budget in a typical African country is about 20 to 25 percent of GDP, which is relatively small uh, in the order of things. If you look at a similar, similarly situated low-income country in Eastern Europe, the size of government is on the order of 50 percent of GDP. We don't make a judgment between those two models uh, particularly. So uh, the important thing for us is, if you will, uh, a serious, well-managed fiscal plan, a serious, well-managed monetary plan, and then you make your social choices within that envelope. Maybe um, what, two, one more? Okay. I'm going to ask you a question about which I know very little. But if you were advising the Russian government, they recently announced that they would use a lot of their oil and gas revenues, which are huge, to pay off their debts. But if you were thinking about the, the, the growing question of poverty and social unrest and other things in Russia, would you advise them to go in I, again, I don't know much about Russia either, so I'm, I'm a bit out of sea here. But what I would say to an equivalent country is yeah. use a simple example. If you pay off your house loan, right, what else would you have done with that money that you're going to be? If that money is going to sit dormant out, out somewhere and not be used, then better to pay off the loan and not have to pay the debt service. It loosens up your budget. If, however, that money could have been used in a productive, to produce more than the interest you're paying on the loan that you're, so suppose you're paying 6% on your loan, right? But you can use that money to produce a flow of 
goods and services worth 10% per year. Then spend the money on that flow of goods and services. But it's a very complicated question that, that depends on the, the, the sort of the situation the economy is in. Russia, per se, again, I just don't have enough background in Russia to, to answer the question. Thank you very much. It's been very stimulating for me.